0: You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super.
1: Hello and welcome to Super Talk. My name is Gary West, and I'm the Senior Manager Media and Communications with AIST. Today we'll be looking at many of the current issues facing super funds. Joining me is Gary Weaven, Senior Advisor with Tanara Capital. Founding Executive Chair of Industry Fund Services and Retired Chair of IFM Investors PT Wine Limited and Industry Super Holdings Limited. Gary, thanks for joining me today. Can smaller superannuation funds survive?
0: Well, I think, think, yes, they can. I I think uh, maybe not all of them, but I think they can. But I do think uh, the... They have to work probably harder than the, the bigger funds in order to achieve the same results because there's no denying the very, very substantial uh, scale economies in all aspects of super from investing, insurance, admin and 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 compliance and really everything. So they do have to work a bit harder. One of the things that they could consider doing, I think, is um, – Perhaps cooperating together on certain activities, for example, uh, collective portfolios um, with other funds, things like that, that help might help to get the unit costs uh, down for them.
1: Why is scale so important for super funds maintaining their independence and even surviving?
0: Well, it's just that, that if you think about, for example, administration and uh, the need to keep abreast of regulatory and legal changes and so on. Now, all of that, all of that programming cost and so on has to be spread over uh, everyone's accounts. And the more accounts there are to spread it over, the, the lower the unit cost. That's one example. Another obvious example is the benefits of mass numbers in death and disability insurance. Uh, where insurers are much more likely to give a very good deal, if the risk of selectivity uh, by small numbers against the insurer's risks uh, is, is eliminated. So, insurance deals, um, you know, require a very big scale to get the best deal, and absolutely, that's the case in funds management uh, for for a lot of the uh, uh, different asset classes and different products. Um, the costs may rise uh, with, with bigger dollars and more members, but they certainly don't rise in proportion um, to the scale of the, of the, of the, of the dollars and, and the members so that the unit costs of investing money uh, fall quite dramatically with scale.
1: What's your take on the age old debate about whether active stock selection can add value after fees? above passive management of listed equities?
0: Well, this was going around, I I suspect, for uh, 20 years before the 80s, and it's been going ever since uh, I became involved. Uh, And, you know, one theory or the other gets the upper hand, depending on different times in the cycle. Uh, I I think, on balance, that um, there may be windows where active management uh, can add some value after fees it, because it costs more, after fees, add some value over and above the index. Uh, and, you know, the current period may well be one of those times where there's a lot of volatility and, and so on. But in the long run, uh, I think very, very difficult uh, for active management to add value over and above the cost, over and above the fees, with the possible exception of uh, successful active management where, the, where it's quite a concentrated position and where you are actually trying to improve the company that you're investing in, that sort of active intervention can differentiate because the problem otherwise with active uh, management is that really almost everyone has identical information and there is so much information about listed companies.
1: I'm interested in your thoughts on the likely investment style of super funds over the long term, and whether you see them increasingly investing on a passive basis at the margin. And if so, what are the implications of that for uh, investment fees and fees overall?
0: Well, there's a lot of things that could influence that, but I think um, if they can access, you know, really significant reduced fees, the temptation will be uh, to keep pushing down the uh, down the road of increasing indexation. On the other hand, I think um, the, it may well be the case that that portion of their portfolio that they hold uh, in an active um, uh, in an active uh, mandate uh, becomes more active. That is, becomes perhaps more concentrated, uh, becomes more active in terms of intervention in companies in taking significant bets uh, and and making significant investments in improving companies. So I think indexing uh, will will continue to grow probably as a percentage of total equity investing, Um, but so will private investing, so will private investing outside of the listed markets. Uh, And within the listed markets, I think, uh, there'll be a need for managers to be more active.
1: Do you think funds individually or collectively should lobby for a pro sustainability carbon reduction regulatory environment?
0: Well, I do. Uh, a lot of people will disagree on that. And the funds have sort of been had it you know, bashed into them by certain parts of the media that um to you know stay right away from political and social questions and so on. But the truth is that you know it's extremely difficult to actually invest against the regulators or against the legislators. Uh, if if legislators or regulators decide to go in a certain direction in their in their regulations and policies, um, then it's very, very hard for private um, investors to buck that trend and go against it because of the pervasive power of, of, um, of governments, both state and federal governments. So um, I think if funds uh, want to um, invest in the things that are important for the, the long-term benefit of their members, they need to tell the story and they need to get the public on side with that. And they need to uh, stand up to, you know, some of the troglodyte uh, politicians who would turn the clock back. And in the process, um, probably detract a lot of value from, from investment portfolios, as well as from social outcomes.
1: I'm interested in your thoughts on the federal government's push for super funds to add a, a social dimension to their investing, um, including investing more in social housing, affordable housing, a, and in the energy transition?
0: Well, in the, case of, um, in the case of affordable housing, I'm not sure that the federal government has pushed it so much as um, I've been pushing it for, for many, many years without a lot of success. Um, but because it is such an important uh, social issue, and, if it's not addressed, then there will be a temptation, as you can see, at quite evident already. Uh, there'll be a, te- a temptation from some parts of the political landscape to take the money off super and, and simply say, well, we're going to divert money away from superannuation and into addressing this housing affordability issue. And uh, uh, you know, so I think both on the affordable rental as well as affordable uh, ownership of housing uh, funds need to do more and uh, and i think that the excuses for not doing it um, really are excuses uh, if it's said sometimes that oh well they're investing in um, multi-family uh, uh, housing in london in and new-, and new york or los angeles and because the regulatory environment is more favorable or the tax environment is more favorable than in Australia, but I, I don't think that's the case. I think the reason the investments have gone there is because uh, they are existing, established investable markets and it's easy. So I think funds have tended to take the easy way and which is quite understandable, take the easy way of, um, of investing in that asset class offshore uh, to some degree uh, and to a very small degree. Onshore. That's starting to change. I think it is starting to change. And I think the relationship with government is much more one of saying to the government, the funds saying to the government, look, if you want to push uh, the weight of residential investment in the direction of social housing and affordable housing, rental or ownership, uh, then you need to probably have some policy levers in government. To, to push the weight in that direction uh, and uh, but I do think the time has come for residential uh, property to be a distinct asset class in Australia for for major funds
1: you referred to regulators early earlier is the APRA performance test on the right track I
0: don't think it is every 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 um, Uh, commentator, every expert, every boffin has got some problems with it and a lot of what the the critics say is is justified. I think, moreover, that the fundamental problem has been that APRA has been caught in this political, uh, this politicisation of regulation and at times they've been on the wrong side of that. And uh, so they've destroyed a certain amount of trust over recent decades. And had they not done that, indeed, were they to restore uh, uh, trust, basic trust of the industry, then I think it would they, they would be able to and it would make more sense for them then to take a balanced scorecard approach to um to restricting or limiting licences for chronic under un- underperformance. And I think the industry would accept that. Uh, so, so if they can just build a bit of trust, then they could have a much more sensible and balanced approach to um, to regulating underperforming funds, and if necessary, removing the license of of chronic underperforming funds. I think that would be far better than having endless arguments about trying to split uh, asset classes into various bits and pieces, because. Uh, You know, the the truth is that asset classes are pretty arbitrary anyway. They're an invention largely of the asset consulting community and and academia over the years. When you look inside those asset classes, they host a myriad of different assets within and different types of assets within the same class. So I think they'd be better taking a more balanced scorecard approach.
1: In brief, what do you think are the major challenges facing trustees in the next few years?
0: Well, the number one challenge is to uh, maintain the social license. Um, Superannuation clearly is a creature of government. And uh, and and uh, is driven by the tax and preservation rules around it. And uh, so if you you look at um, the industry is moving towards a a 12 percent compulsory employer contribution. Uh, for most of the workforce and, uh, and is a preserved uh, preserved form of saving. And that being the case, you know, there's going to be enormous pressure and focus on the trustees to continue to perform, you in know, a, in a first-class way. And uh, so I think uh, focusing on that social licence and sticking to a – Net benefit to members, that's what they need to be concerned about, what goes into the member's account uh, over medium and long-term periods. That's all that APRA should be focused on too, by the way. Uh, you know, APRA's all of APRA's guidance ought to be purely evidence-based. They shouldn't be telling trustees what to do in the absence of really strong evidence that that will be in the member's uh, long-term interest. Um, so, you know, that that's the number one, that's the number one challenge. Part of that is what we were talking about before. Uh, issues like uh, successful energy transition for our economy and uh, addressing affordable housing. Uh, you know, that that's going to be part of that social license.
1: Are funds doing enough to help their members move into retirement? Uh, and if not, what could they be doing better?
0: Uh, I think... Uh, this may have changed because I'm a little out of touch now but uh, I think for many many years the funds were uh, overly cautious about providing advice Um, I mean that's understandable given the the criticism that they've often got um, uh, in the press and and some of the supervisory supervisory uh, oversight you know has been pretty uh, sort of rigid rules driven uh, rather than common sense and bona fides driven, if you like. So, so I think the funds could have done more over the years uh, to provide advice. So as long as they're acting bona fides in the members' interests, I really don't think they're gonna get into any, any real trouble about that. Um, so they could be a bit braver and they could do a bit more, particularly focusing on those transit uh, the transition years when people are uh, at or close to retirement, and giving you know basic, basic advice, and keeping people away from bad advice, because you know the, the legislative reforms and improvements that we've achieved in the last five or ten years, are very significant, but uh, they don't eradicate bad advice and bad practices, and uh, the funds do have, I think, an obligation to try and shield their members as far as possible. You can't completely uh, save people from themselves, but they do have an obligation to try and keep people away from bad advice. And the best way to do that is by giving them good advice about the basics of retirement income.
1: Just finally, is there a risk that the industry funds will become the uh, national mutuals and AMPs of the future, essentially losing touch (laughs) with their origins?
0: Well, it's certainly true that the the old style mutuals, A um, and B National Mutual, Colonial Mutual, MLC, all of those, all of them, were a lot of them, and they were completely dominant uh, in in superannuation and financial services in the in the right up to the nineties, completely dominant, and none of them exist. There's not one mutual uh, form of of left. Uh, there's a couple that. Uh, have, have kept some some uh, vestige of their name, but their their um, listed companies, former uh, sorry, uh, tiny um, uh, replicate, tiny representations of their former glory, is perhaps the way to put it. And uh, and so so it's quite clear that that radical change can occur over periods of a decade or or, or two or less. Uh, and uh, so there's no reason why that disruption that industry funds by and large cause to the old retail model. Um, there's no reason why some similar disruption might not affect the, the industry fund model. Um, the, best, um, the best antidote to that is, of course, continued focus on the members' best interest. What happened to a lot of those old mutuals is they in the end, became very inwardly focused. They were operating very substantially in their own interests, that is, in the interests of their executives, in the interests of their boards in a fairly cosy relationship. So to avoid that, industry funds need strong governance. Uh, The the trustees need to be able to give very clear direction uh, and stand by it, clear direction to their executives. The executives need to be Recruited and trained and maintained with both eyes on net benefit to members.
1: That's all for this episode of Super Talk. Thanks to Gary Weaven. For more episodes of Super Talk and for for more information on the work of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, visit our website at aist.asn.au, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.